Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 30, What Now? We all know the story of the territory Adolf Hitler grabbed before the war. The Rhineland, in defiance of Versailles in general, and France in particular. The Anschluss, the annexation of Austria. But really, hadn't that country just been the other side of the German coin? And it was the Führer's birthplace. The deed was done by an intimidating nod and wink. But it was done. Who knew how the majority of the Austrians really felt? The truth would never well out. Then there was the Munich Agreement that gave the Sudetenland, or Western Czechoslovakia, filled with Germans, to Germany. After all, Hitler was screaming about his abused people there, all lies of course, but even if it wasn't true, he was willing, or seemed willing, to fight over it, which no one on the other side of the table was. Of course, we now know that Neville Chamberlain, a realist, was playing for time. He could read the writing on the wall and saw that another general war was coming. But Britain wasn't prepared, not in the sense that Germany was, which had been rearming even before the rise of Hitler. Britain needed time, even if that meant selling out a part of the Czech state. Besides, they would get it back once the war was won. And to boot, after the signing, Hitler made it clear that this was his last territorial design. Germany would be at peace. So, not only had Western Europe gained time to rearm, but if Germany tried to swindle land from another country again, the lines would be clear, not to mention the blame. But then there's Hitler's point of view. He had confused Europe's diplomatic channels with his speeches, while inspiring his own people. He had taken what he wanted again and again and gotten away with it. He even took the rest of the Czech state later in 1938, and the world only watched. Oh sure, Britain and France signed an agreement with Poland, saying they would assist if Poland was attacked. But what did that mean? How were the Allies to get their troops and weapons their comparatively pitiful small number of men and equipment to Poland to stop the Germans. They couldn't. No, Hitler would outsmart them again by invading and conquering Poland so quickly that the question of assistance would be taken away from the Western European powers before they took a single step. Which meant, for Hitler, a gamble, taking a risk. But the odds looked good from the view of the office of the Reich Chancellery, if precedent was anything to go by. So, 25 German divisions, not their best, or with their best equipment, would guard Germany's border with France. The rest, the remaining 60 divisions, fully equipped, would invade Poland, smashing their defenses and resistance. But what about the USSR? What about Stalin? This was the great unknown. How would the Russian premier react to millions of Germans once again on his border, with their tanks and planes? That was the stumbling point. But not really. The Soviet Union had its own land-grabbing schemes and welcomed the secret part of the non-aggression pact with Nazi Germany. Poland would be divided, and each side was free to make any other moves they wanted, 
knowing their border with each other was secure. Well, relatively so. So, with his distant eastern border secure and his western border nominally protected, Hitler launched his invasion of Poland. But it wasn't supposed to be the start of a general European war. It was supposed to be a crash and grab, albeit on a national scale. However, Great Britain and France did not react as they had before. By the third day of the invasion, September 3rd, Great Britain, after several warnings, declared war on Nazi Germany. When Der Fuhrer heard this, he turned to his foreign minister, von Ribbentrop, and said, quote, unquote, What now? The arrogant foreign secretary was silent for once, then muttered that a similar response would be forthcoming from France. Obviously, the answer was that whatever territory Hitler took from now on, it would be by fighting for it. But this is not the story of the diplomatic, bloodless conquests Hitler orchestrated before Poland, nor the lightning warfare that allowed him further, even more impressive victories after the fall of the Polish state. This is the story of the country in between those. Poland. The story of the first country taken by open war. Poland was the spark that signaled the beginning of the end of Nazi Germany. It would be just shy of six years before that spark became a light of freedom. But gone were the days when Germany, just like during the Great War, with its geographical location, could take on the industrial and more populous giants of the U.S. and Russia, along with the courageous Churchill-led Britain at the same time. Still, Hitler had specific plans for Poland, or rather, his section of it the two-thirds of the country given to him by the secret protocol within the non-aggression pact with Stalin. Poland was to be cleared of the Slavs and the Jews, while their property went to his folk. Lebensraum, living space, that was the medicine for Germany's economic wounds. In addition, this would also allow German forces to be that much closer to Hitler's ultimate goal, Moscow. But the Polish, well, some of them, would refuse to play their roles according to the Nazi script. The Jews and the Gentiles already had their skin thickened as they battled each other to decide their respective roles within the country and its capital, Warsaw, before the invasion. The German bombs falling from the sky, or the German artillery shells that crashed into their homes and businesses, did not discriminate between the two groups of Jews and Gentiles. Both groups were to be targeted. So, it only stood to reason that the two groups should work together now. But that's not to say that the old views didn't hold. They did, and for many. But necessity is the mother of invention, or in regards to this time, survival. The people of Poland would fight back. They would push the Nazis back across the border. They would have their country back. This is Poland's story. At 4.45 a.m. on the morning of September 1st, 1939, German forces, some 1.5 million men, invaded Poland from the north and west of its capital, Warsaw. As that day was a Friday, the people of Warsaw mostly went about their business. The German hordes were, well, 
out there, somewhere else, far off. The restaurants, theaters, racetracks, and jazz clubs not only stayed open, but they were all packed. After all, it was date night. Still, there were signs that not all was normal that first day of invasion. Long lines of Varsovians, another name for the people of Warsaw, could be seen outside the PKO State Savings Bank. It was the line for withdrawals. Then those same people, and many more, could be seen at retailers, buying up all the stocks of food and medicines. These people had seen war before and knew what was coming, if it came to Warsaw. Rumors around the city, and they were fervently believed, was that this was just another limited land grab by that man in Berlin. German troops were probably going to take the Pomeranian-Polish corridor given to Poland in 1918 to the north that separated Germany proper from eastern Prussia, and probably to Danzig, the open port city, as well as some of western Poland. But then stop. Hitler would have another victory, the tension would die down, and life, more or less, would get back to normal within the truncated country. As those people stood in line, with their cash now in their hands, they witnessed soldiers come along and cover up the fall opera schedule with notices that all government vacations were cancelled, as well as an order for a general mobilization. Of course, some of those people in line were Jews, and of them, some were Zionists, who believed that the only answer for peace for their kind was their own homeland in Palestine. As for the remaining Jews, if they were political, they were Bundists. And the 300,000 registered Bundists of Poland considered themselves realists. They believed that their people in Poland needed to stay put and fight for equality, economic, political, and cultural. They had or would earn the right to be a real part of the country. But whether a Zionist or Bundist, the people of both groups had experienced a strange year. The normally anti-Semitic government of the pro-fascist Senazi regime, really a group of generals, the top man being Marshal Smigwi Arads, had toned down, as did the state newspaper, their attacks on both Jewish groups. Instead, as tension had increased over the last few months with Nazi Germany, the government emanated notes of cooperation and even toleration. Then came, to the astonishment of the Jewish community, hints of praise. Truly, the Senazi must have been desperate. But some things seemed not to have changed, as one young Zionist by the name of Isaac Zuckerman offered to fight for the government, as German troops were now on Polish soil. Zuckerman hated the government, but loved Poland, and now his country, his home, his people were under attack. But as he and others with him tried to enlist, they were turned down. Obviously, the government's recent words of respect were just that, words. But Zuckerman was not giving up. He was young, over six feet, and strong. His country needed him. And as he continued to offer himself up, along with a few other Zionists, the picture became clearer. 
One young officer replied to Zuckerman's questions that he wished he knew what to do with his volunteers. He hadn't even been given orders for the men already under his command. Obviously, confusion reigned. Zuckerman put this lack of coordination down to being far away from the capital. As the German invasion commenced, Zuckerman had been in eastern Poland, in the town of Kleban, which is east-southeast of Warsaw, giving lectures concerning the training of future Zionists. But the time for talk was over. He had to get back to Warsaw, to his family. If Zuckerman glanced at any of the newspapers on his dash back west, he would have seen that the government leaders were of one accord. The puppet president, Ignatius Mlasiski, and the real leader, Marshal Edward Smigwi Aride's photos, were on the front page. Their relaxed yet arrogant smiles exuded confidence. The puppet's quote was, quote, The entire Polish nation, blessed by God, in its holy and religious cause, together with the army, will march arm in arm to battle and total victory. Unquote. But if victory was to be theirs, then this was a war, yes, not a limited land grab. There were no answers, but only questions for the 1.3 million people of Warsaw and the 380,000 Jews of the Jewish quarter within the capital. September 1st was an important day for another group of Varsovians for an entirely different reason. That day was the first day of school, and as the Germans had been dashing over the Polish border for the last three hours, the children of the capital were rising to start their day. One such was 15-year-old Sima Rothauser. His school was at the southern end of the Jewish quarter on Mushroom Street. While on the way, he and others heard the dreaded school bells ring. But before the children's spirit could be lowered by this, another sound all but drowned out the bells, and that was the air raid sirens. As the children stopped trying to figure out how to react, an announcement would blast from every radio, all clear. Did that mean they should continue on to school? Rothauser surmised, since he didn't want to go to school, then that was probably what was expected. But Simha, nor any of his other students, much less their teachers, could concentrate that day. The air raid sirens continued to rupture the silence. The following, all clear each time, did little to ease tensions. As they stood in the schoolyard, planes could be seen circling overhead. The students debated whose aircraft they were. Some said they were Polish. Others said no. Some said they were conducting exercises. Others said not so. However, within a very short time, all of the students and their parents, the ones that survived into the near future, would become experts in determining who was flying what over their heads. The sad truth was that the planes overhead were Polish aircraft defending the capital. Unfortunately, those patrols were made up of P-2s, otherwise known as bumblebees, or P-6s, with British Vickers engines. Either way, they were old, obsolete, and yet charged with defending Warsaw against the more modern German Luftwaffe. 
this same guessing game of identifying aircraft would be played out all over again, this time by the blue-collar adults as they emerged from their shifts, from the Lilpop, Rao, and Lowenstein plant, where they made Buicks, Chevrolets, and Obel Cadets, and from the Samuel and Sender Ginsburg Bragg Rubber Works. Their guesses weren't any better than the children's, but again, that would change in time. That night, the first night of the invasion, life was more or less going on as normal. The rough-and-tumble crowd, having minimally cleaned themselves up, headed to the local bars to discuss the day's events, which led to debates of the Germans' intentions, which led to bar fights, a weekly occurrence. But before any authority could intercede in between those trying to out-debate their opponents with their fists, a loud voice could be heard coming from the street. As one, they all stopped mid-punch and went outside. Passing by was a blue Chevy truck, atop a large loudspeaker. Blaring from it was the voice of their marshal. Quote, Today, a total of 16 enemy airplanes were destroyed. Our own losses. Two aircraft. Unquote. The message then repeated itself. The dirty men, tired and now bruised, walked back into the tavern, pleased by what they heard. The fighting at least within those four walls, had stopped. In other, nicer parts of the capital, as others heard the same communique, those citizens continued on their way to cafes, restaurants, and theaters. Their moods lifted somewhat. The same could be said of the now-packed 400-plus synagogues and other religious sites throughout Warsaw. Greetings, everyone from Central Virginia. Um, I would like to play a little clip for you. It's a uh, it's a radio broadcast from Warsaw, uh, um, describing the events of the first day, September first of the war. Uh, so I'd like to play that for you. Uh, most of you can understand, but it really gives you a sense of what these people were dealing with. But before I do that, I just want to randomly announce that um, I'm going to be giving away some of the coffee mugs for the members, and just another way of thanking you for supporting the supporting the podcast. So I will be contacting James B. in Sacramento, California, getting his address and seeing if he wants the Churchill or the Roosevelt. And I'll just do this for every episode um, just for a while. Just just again, just to thank you, everybody. Uh, I really do appreciate it. And I hope you enjoy this series on the um, the war with Poland. Take care. The general staff has issued the following communique. Number one at 6.15 p.m. On the 1st of September, 1939, at dawn, the Germans crossed into our territory. German Air Force and regular army unexpectedly invaded Polish territory without a declaration of hostilities. In the early morning, the German airplanes attacked a number of towns all over Poland. The German airmen have bombed Augustus, Novichburg, Ostrów, Mazowiecki, Brodnica, Czech, Puck, Zambów, Radomsko, Toruń, Kutno, Tunel, Kraków, Krosno, Trzebinia, Gdynia, Jasło, Tomaszów, Mazowiecki, Katowice, Grodno. Casualties have been reported among the civilian population. Near Kutno, the Germans have both machine gunned and bombed an evacuation train. In Grodno, a Catholic church was damaged. At Białopodlaska, a Greek Orthodox church was partly destroyed. Further bombings are taking place. 
In the region of Danzig, the German Air Force attacks Gdynia, bombing it heavily. The enemy in our force consists of 16 airplanes which have been brought down today. Thailand has lost two units. Simultaneously with air attacks, German troops have violated Polish territory crossing the border in several places. Fighting is going on in the frontier regions. The heaviest fighting is reported from the Silesian sector. Up to now, Polish artillery has destroyed the German armored train, thus taking prisoners. Several tanks have been put out of action. In Danzig, three German attacks against Vesper Plateau have been repelled. In reply to Polish protests yesterday against the military occupation of Slovakia, Monsieur Schatzmare, the Slovak minister in Warsaw, presented the following statement in a theme to Colonel Beck, the Polish foreign minister, this morning. In the name of the Slovak nation and of its representatives, who under the pressure of the Third Reich are forced to silence and used for intrigues in the exclusive interests of Germany, I, as the representative of the Slovak state in the Republic of Poland, protest against the brutal disarmament of the Slovak army, against the willful occupation of Slovakia by the armies of the Third Reich, and finally, against the using of Slovakia for military operations directed against the brotherly Polish nations.